Welcome to The Future of Antitrust, a series produced by BYU Law School's Global Business Law Program. All right, hello. I am Professor Aaron Nielsen uh, from Brigham Young University Law School. Thank you for joining us um, for our webinar this morning, Understanding FTC Rulemaking. This webinar is part of BYU's Law's Future of Antitrust series. If you're interested in this topic or any others like it, please check out our website and conferences. You can find more about them um, at futureofantitrust.law.byu.edu. Next month, we are hosting a conference in Washington, DC on tech platforms and online retail. A few years ago, the FTC invited me to speak on a subject that at the time was relatively under the radar, um, FTC rulemaking authority. It was a great opportunity for me uh, because while I already knew something about the topic, um, nothing focuses the mind like having to tell the agency its own authority. Um, so I did some time researching and working on the issue. I went to the FTC, I spoke at a workshop, um, and I wondered, is that the end of this? Was this just an academic exercise um, or is this is something actually gonna come of this? Well, it turns out that something did come um, out of it. Fast forward to today, uh, where the FTC's rulemaking authority is one of the hottest topics in administrative law, uh, thanks in large part to Chair Lena Khan, who envisions robust, FT robust use of FTC rulemaking. This development has prompted lots of questions, such as, does the FTC even have rulemaking authority for unfair methods of competition, i.e. antitrust? The DC Circuit held in the 1970s that the, DC, um, that the FTC does have such authority. The Supreme Court, however, has not yet weighed in. Um, and we will see what happens because statutory interpretation has changed a, a lot in the last 50 years. Um, likewise, in the context of consumer protection, there's no question that the FTC has authority to promulgate rules for consumer protection, but they have to go through a specialized kind of a hybrid rulemaking process. So what can the FTC do within the confines of the law um, to speed up that process, if anything? And then as a policy matter, when should the FTC use its rulemaking authority? Um, historically, the FTC has done a lot of its policymaking through case-by-case -case adjudication. Um, they haven't, they, though there's some ex exceptions, some examples of FTC rulemaking, they haven't done a lot through rulemaking. When does it make sense to do it through rulemaking? And then finally, what's happening right now? What are the issues that the FTC is looking at? What rules maybe are coming down uh, the line? So to answer some of these questions, we put together a panel of experts, and I'm really excited for this group. We're first going to hear from Henry Sue, a partner at Bradley Aaron Bolt Cummings, um, who previously served as a competition advisor to the FTC chair and separately to an FTC commissioner. He also served as a trial lawyer in the Competition Bureau unit tasked with anti-competitive merger and conduct cases. After Henry, we're gonna hear from Svetlana Gans, a partner at Gibson Dunn, um, who previously served as the vice president and associate general counsel at NCTA, the Internet and Television Association, and also as chief of staff to the acting FTC chair. She also was a litigator in the, both the FTC's competition and consumer protection bureaus. Finally, batting cleanup will be um, Professor Gus Hurwitz, a professor at the University of Nebraska College of Law, where he serves as the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. He also is the Director for Law and Economics Programming with the International Center for Law and Economics. So after our speakers um, offer their initial remarks, they'll get a chance to talk back and forth um, to each other. And then I'll throw some questions out to the group. Uh, after that point, we'll then open it up um, for those in the audience um, to ask questions of our experts. So with that, Henry, the floor is yours. 
Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for inviting me to be part of this uh, future of antitrust webinar. Um, so I think part of what I'm going to do in my opening remarks is to just stage, you know, set the stage. When we talk about FTC rulemaking and then really what the debate, you know, is today, we're talking about rulemaking authority under the statute that creates the commission, right, and empowers the commission to do two things: to, you know, prevent uh, unfair methods of competition in or affecting commerce and unfair or deceptive acts or practices in or affecting commerce. Those those two things, right, define the commission's dual missions, you know, in competition and consumer protection. What we're not talking about would be rulemaking authority that's specifically granted to the commission by Congress when it passes, passes a statute. And perhaps the one that's going to be most familiar to the audience would be, say, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. That act, you know, in the in the uh, provisions of that act, there is a spe specific direction to the commission to promulgate rules, right, to implement to enforce that act. And you know, it requires you know um, people who collect uh, information about minors to say what it what it is that they're collecting and to get parental consent. So that's not what we're talking about. When we're talking, when we're talking about rulemaking authority, we're talking about what rule, what rulemaking authority does the commission have to, in order to carry out its mission to prevent, you know, unfair methods of competition and to prevent unfair or deceptive acts or practices generally. And the, the way I want to comment this is to talk about it from a historical context, right? To understand kind of how the commission came about and what Congress was thinking back in 1913, 1914, when it, you know, when it uh, enacted the Federal Trade Commission Act and created this commission. So back, um, back in 1913, 1914, what we have are really kind of two different visions of the commission, of what the commission should be. One vision was that it would be a successor to what was then called the Bureau of Corporations. And in that role, it would basically have this, you know, job of classifying corporations, gathering data about companies, you know, doing doing investigations of companies and filing reports. Basically, coming out with work product to help Congress or to help the executive branch, to help the president, the attorney general, that sort of thing. And then the other vision of the commission was this idea that look, Congress can broadly say that unfair methods of competition are wrong. But let's let this commission then go out and be essentially a supplemental antitrust enforcer, bring cases, and through the case law, define, further define what constitutes an unfair method of competition. So essentially, it is an enforcement role for the commission, you know, using the courts um, to define or the administrative form to define what's unlawful, right? So the and, and so what happened was when the, um, you know, in the legislative process, these two visions of the commission kind of got smushed together. And so we have now the statute where you have section five, which is the principal statute that defines kind of what the, what the mission is of the commission. And, and it also defines the fact that, you know, the commission's principal tool is adjudication, is to go if it has a reason to believe that Section 5 has been violated, uh, if it believes it's in the public interest, 
to bring to issue a complaint against the you know the company or entity that's you know accused of breaking the law and to you know seek a cease and desist cease and desist order either in its own administrative forum or in a in a federal court now section 46 or section 6 of the act then talks about these additional powers many of which come from th this vision of the commission as an investigative body with the ability to study to research to file reports and among those provisions in section 6 is section 6g which says okay you can make rules and regulations to carry out the provisions of this subchapter which would be you know the the statute and so it's that section 6g that is the genesis of the ftc's you know broad rulemaking authority and as aaron alluded to you know, in 1973, the D.C. Circuit in a case called National Petroleum Refiners Association versus FTC took a look at this provision, took a look at the legislative history, decided it's ambiguous. It's ambiguous whether, you know, Congress meant to, to give um, FTC this kind of power. In light of that ambiguity, we're going to err on the side of saying that the FTC can do this. And so they left, they, they basically, you know, refused to, you know, declined to say that the FC, FTC didn't have this power. And then two years later, Congress in enacting what are called the Magnuson Moss Warranty and FTC Improvements Act of 1975, reined in the FTC's rulemaking powers as, as to unfair or deceptive acts or practices, but left alone, or at least didn't address, was silent about whether you know, what, what the rulemaking authority would be on the unfair methods of competition side. So that's what we have today. We still have a lot of ambiguity, a lot of silence about exactly what the FTC can do on the competition side as far as rulemaking is concerned. Obviously, on the unfair or deceptive acts or practices side is much clearer. And I know Svetlana will get into some of this, right? We have a lot of a lot of rulemaking that's going through uh, what we call the, you know, the, the Magnuson Moss process, uh, and which is much more complicated than the informal notice and comment rulemaking that we're used to seeing under the Administrative Procedure Act. So that's kind of, you know, where we are. And my interest has been in what exactly is the rulemaking authority for unfair methods of competition or really, you know, what we're, antitrust violations, right? And in a chapter I've written, I basically take the position, well, you know, given that, you know, the DC Circuit said that, you know, there was such a power and Supreme Court has not taken it up thus far, let's assume that it has that power. But then the question becomes, should it use that power over what it's done for a hundred years, which is to enforce, you know, the statute through adjudication, through case-by-case -case adjudication? And my view is that you know case-by-case -case adjudication in general is a superior mechanism for enforcing Section 5 as to unfair methods of competition. And I, I give three reasons. The first reason is the fact that you know we when the FTC Act was was passed, right? It was it was done against the backdrop of what was then developing as the rule reason in antitrust. This idea that, you know, 
when you look at whether something violates the antitrust laws, you have to look at whether it's reasonable under the circumstances. You have to look at the, you know, the facts of that case. And that mode of analysis has prevailed to this day. And the FTC, even when it enforces Section 5, essentially you know, endorses, adopts this rule reason-like analysis. And we're looking at, so we're looking at things on a case-by-case -case basis, which makes it very difficult to say, well, you can generalize, you know, in the form of a rule that applies across the board, either to, you know, a sector or an industry or a market. It's just very much harder to do that, right? The second reason I would give is the whole idea of due process. Uh, companies, entities that are accused of violating a rule are still entitled to due process. They're still entitled to present facts to say, well, yeah, I know you have this rule, this trade regulation rule that prohibits these forms of, you know, you know, these unfair methods of competition, but either the rule doesn't apply to me and here's why, or I didn't violate the rule and here's why. So there's still, even with a, a you know, a, a, a competition rule, there's still going to be this opportunity for the entity that is accused of violating the rule to have due process, to be able to have its day in court and explain why it doesn't apply. And again, so, you know, from a resources standpoint, it kind of begs the question, well, is, does it really make sense then to kind of have the rule and then have adjudication? Why don't you just sue the company without the rule? And, and prove everything in, in, in the, you know, in the context of the of the proceedings. The last point I'll make is, you know, for the most part, when the FTC enforces Section Five as a competition statute, it is enforcing the same antitrust statutes, the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, uh, that the Antitrust Division enforces, right? And the Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice doesn't have rulemaking authority. And so to the extent that the, the commission is thinking about engaging in rulemaking in the competition space, there is this risk of conflict or tension between the commission's rules and the, you know, what the division, what the antitrust may be division on, on you know, may, may be doing, you know, in case-by-case -case enforcement. So that's kind of the groundwork I wanted to, to set and um, I'll stop there and pass it on to Thanks, Svetlana. Yep, great. Uh, thank you so much, Henry, for that overview. And thank you, Professor Nielsen and the BYU Law School for hosting this important discussion today. Um, I will pick up where Henry left off, which is to discuss some of the current rules in play at the commission, both on the consumer protection and the competition side. And then Gus could get into the media administrative law and other issues that those uh, rules um, raised. So as Professor Nielsen discussed at the beginning, the FTC is seriously considering the promulgation of new rules. Uh, this fact alone is significant because the FTC has not promulgated new rules in decades. So this is definitely a sea change in respect to the commission's activities. As Henry mentioned, the FTC is typically um, in favor of case-by-case -case enforcement. Yet in the FTC strategic plan that was recently issued, the FTC has indicated a preference for rulemaking. 
Um, to understand that, one must consider why the FTC is more engaged in rulemaking than case-by-case -case enforcement, just as a backdrop. And the answer to that question is the Supreme Court held in AMG that the FTC lacked the ability to seek equitable monetary relief for consumers. And so the FTC is looking in its toolkit to identify other ways to get money back for consumers. And one way the FTC is able to do this is to promulgate rules. And a violation of those rules would allow the FTC to seek civil penalties, as well in some cases consumer redress. So that is why the FTC in part is seeking to promulgate additional rules uh, because it feels that it does not have the ability to have uh, give consumers money back. So that is kind of the push in part for rulemaking. So on the consumer protection side, the FTC has issued three advanced notices for proposed rulemaking, and they really fall in the gamut of the continuum in terms of definitely within the FTC UDAP authority to the other continuum, perhaps not within the FTC uh, authority. So I wanted to describe um, and compare and contrast both uh, three of these rules. So the first rule is probably the most tied to the FTC's UDAP authority. It was a proposed rule. Um, the advance notice of proposed rulemaking was issued in December of 2021. And then the notice of proposed rulemaking was issued in September of 2022. Um, as um, Professor Nielsen discussed, the FTC for rulemaking under the UDAP authority must follow Section 18 procedures, which is more cumbersome than the APA notice and comment procedures. And those include um, requiring the FTC to issue an advance notice, sending a copy of the proposed rule to Congress, issuing a notice of proposed rulemaking, seeking public comment there, providing the uh, public an opportunity to have informal hearings. So there is a quite a robust and cumbersome process for UDAP rulemaking. And that is why the FTC in this instance has to first issue an advance notice and then seek public comment and then issue a notice. So Jack, that's just by way of procedure, but I think Gus will discuss that in his remarks. So with respect to the first rule, uh, it's an advance notice and a proposed rule covering government and business impersonation scams. The proposed rule in this instance would make it unlawful to falsely pose as or misrepresent directly or in, in, by implication affiliations with including endorsement or sponsorship by a government or business entity or officer. So generally what this proposed rule would ban is they would prohibit anyone from calling, emailing, creating websites or posing as a business or a government entity. So that sounds pretty unfair and deceptive um, that if you pose to be a business or a government that you're not, that's kind of borderline fraud. So that seems pretty consistent with the FTC's UDAP authority. Moving further along the continuum, the FTC in March of this year issued a, a advanced notice of proposed rulemaking covering earnings claims. The FTC is considering a, a proposing a rule to address deceptive or unfair earnings claims or income opportunities. In its advance notice, the FTC posed several questions regarding the UDAP authority as to earnings claims. Some of the questions FTC posed include how widespread earnings claims deception is, 
whether deceptive earnings claims are more prevalent in certain industries versus other industries, whether uh, the circumstances in which earnings claims are conveyed are typical, um, whether lifestyle claims should be included and so forth. So uh, the FTC is looking for public comment with respect to all of those questions. So when you look at the earnings claims rulemaking, some of it could be potentially tied to the FTC's UDAP authority, but some questions the FTC presents could be potentially outside the FTC's UDAP authority. So for example, if someone lies about the income associated with their opportunity, that's probably borderline fraudulent and should be covered um, as an unfair deceptive practice. However, the FTC's notice also poses other potential obligations on, on employers and others subject to their rule. For example, in the advance notice, it does not necessarily make it obvious what conduct is covered. So for example, the FTC states that liability would depend on whether the net impression conveyed by misrepresentations, not merely their expressed terms is substantiated or misleading. So that could really be subject to interpretation as to whether a net impression could be deemed misleading or unfair. Then the FTC's uh, notice also discusses a disclosure document. For example, the FTC is considering requiring a disclosure document, substantiation and record keeping for any earnings claims and earnings claims is not necessarily defined. So the question then becomes, do the burdens on individuals and small businesses outweigh any potential benefits of the rule to consumers? For example, if I employ a babysitter that is making $15 an hour, do I have to present that babysitter a disclosure document listing all of the ins and outs of the employment agreement? Um, do I have to tell the babysitter in an ad or in a help wanted sign that taxes and fees are excluded from $15 an hour? So these are the types of questions that the FTC notice poses because what might be reasonable a burden for a large company may not necessarily be a reasonable burden on smaller or other employers. The other questions that this specific um, advance notice poses it is to what extent is the FTC really acting as a de facto labor department? For example, should the FTC be regulating wages? Should the FTC be regulating employee classifications? Should the FTC be regulating independent contractors? So those are some of the questions this notice presents. And so, as I mentioned at the intro, it kind of is more in the middle of the continuum with respect to where the FTC's authority lies. The third rule on the consumer protection side that is getting the most um, news right now is the FTC's rulemaking on quote unquote commercial surveillance. So according to Chair Khan, digital technologies have rapidly evolved with transformations in business models and technical capabilities, but these advances, while providing many conveniences, enable entirely new forms of persistent tracking and routinized surveillance. So it's really corporate surveillance is basically the FTC's privacy and data security rulemaking, but they wanted to have a, a fancy title and kind of a scary thing, so they deemed it corporate surveillance. So in its rulemaking, the FTC posed 95 questions. I will not relay all of the 95 questions on this 
presentation, but some of the questions relate to um, how commercial surveillance practices harms children, teens, and consumers, um, whether the FTC should regulate data security, uh, whether the FTC should regulate um, remedies and or automated decision making and so forth. So um, the FTC has asked all these questions to determine whether or not a rule is necessary and if it is necessary, kind of what the contours of the rules are. So in my mind, this rulemaking poses the, the most significant issues with respect to authority questions. For example, the notice, while for example, in my mind, if someone lies with respect to their terms of service, that could be perceived as deceptive and should be covered. There are other facets of the proposed rule in terms of the questions presented that may, may be deviating from the FTC's UDAP authority. For example, the FTC defines consumer as including businesses and workers. The FTC's rule may limit facial recognition, fingerprinting, and biometric technologies. The FTC rule may limit first-party and third-party marketing, and may also restrict automated decision-making. And furthermore, the FTC privacy rulemaking also goes into areas of competition law. If you read the advance notice, the FTC is considering addressing antitrust remedies uh, via a privacy rule by potentially limited companies' abilities to quote unquote, own or operate a business that engages in practices like personalized or targeted advertising. So these questions really go beyond privacy and UDAP and really go into the competition realm. Uh, many of these practices could be perceived as benign and further have not been found by the FTC or any court to be unfair or deceptive. As Henry said, that is the crust of the FTC's UDAP authority. They have to show that the practices they're, they're crafting a rule about have been found to be unfair or deceptive. And many practices discussed in the advance notice, such as facial recognition, first party marketing, targeted advertising have not been deemed to be unfair or deceptive. Um, so um, those are kind of the questions presented on the um, consumer protection side. Quickly turning to competition, um, the FTC has indicated that it is interesting in promulgating several competition rules using its UMC authority, one of which is a rule to ban non-compete provisions in employment contracts. The FTC held uh, a workshop in 2020 uh, looking at this issue. Uh, there has not been a proposed rule uh, issued yet, but we expect it to come down um, any weeks. Um, interesting in terms of process, a potential competition rule would most likely follow the APA rulemaking process, whereas the UDAP rules are following the MAGMOS process. But as I think Gus will elaborate in his remarks, the big question presented there is whether the FTC has the authority to promulgate UMC rules in the first place. So with that, I'll turn it over to Gus. Thank you. Great. Thank you, uh, Svelana, Henry, Aaron, um, and everyone who's joining us for this discussion. So UMC and UDAP and adjudication and rulemaking, oh my, a uh, whole lot of uh, uh, thorny issues uh, on the admin side here. Um, really, the, the big question is whether the FTC can issue substantive UMC rules, antitrust rules, there are a bunch of uh, related questions. I'm going to run through a, a whole lot of issues really quickly. 
just to uh, uh, tie a, a bow around the point that uh, one of the points that Svelana was just making, one of the uh, open puzzling questions is what we call or refer to as hybrid rulemaking. What the procedures, what procedures would govern a uh, UMC antitrust style rule based to address uh, uh, UDAP style concerns or uh, consumer issues? Um, I'll just say there's some fascinating questions there, especially when you have the uh, advanced notice of proposed rulemaking on uh, uh, consumer surveillance, having a paragraph expressly discussing there might be UMC concerns in uh, this UDAP issue. Um, to simply answer the question, can the FTC issue substantive uh, UMC rules? I, my answer is possibly yes, so long as they don't deviate from existing antitrust policy in a substantial way. Um, we will unpack what that means a little bit. Uh, it's worth just framing the entire question here, however. Uh, there's a background question about the scope of uh, the administrative state and administrative authority generally and the Federal Trade Commission ever since Humphrey's executor. You might remember a, a good old early 20th century case uh, about uh, the constitutionality of uh, independent agencies. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission has a way of being at the forefront of a lot of big picture administrative case uh, state cases. Um, and uh, this could very easily turn into one of those issues. We already have uh, some litigation uh, coming up this term, uh, the Axon case that deals with uh, uh, the ability to challenge agencies like the FTC's constitutional structure. So Henry and uh, Aaron have uh, given us the uh, uh, key case that kind of starts this entire discussion, 1973 petroleum refiners, DC circuit case, important to uh, emphasize as Henry did, not a Supreme Court case. But in that case, uh, Judge Skelly Wright uh, takes very much a legal process sort of approach and says, uh, uh, not in his analysis, but this is my gloss on what's going on. Uh, administrative agencies are better than courts when it comes to making rules. Uh, they can be better than Congress when it comes to making rules because they have expertise. So if the statute can be read as saying that the agency has rulemaking authority, we should give it a rulemaking authority. Two years later, again, as Henry uh, uh, keyed up, um, we had Congress come in with the MAGMOS rulemaking uh, 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 authority, the MAGMOS uh, Warranty and FTC Improvement Act. This is a fascinating act, um, especially when you get into the legislative history. Um, how this plays out in any judicial challenge is going to be really interesting here. Uh, the House thought that under uh, National Petroleum Refiners, the FTC clearly has UMC rulemaking authority. The Senate thought, uh, no, it's not quite so clear. We think they probably don't. This was just a one-off case. Uh, the, you have two competing bills in committee. Uh, they get resolved uh, kind of with an agreement not to say anything about UMC authority, even though the two houses disagree about the status of the legal status of their authority. Um, and there's a fascinating note uh, that on the Senate side, uh, they decided not to do anything on uh, UMC, but to put in place the UDAP MAGMOS rules as an experiment to see how uh, things play out over the next couple of years. And then they'll come back and uh, adopt one approach to rulemaking or the other for the FTC and possibly more generally. 
couple years later, uh, the FTC gets into a lot of trouble for aggressive uh, uh, advertising rulemaking. They're called the National Nanny. They're actually shut down or uh, uh, not reauthorized for a period of time. And Congress never really comes back to that. Um, so there's, there's some fascinating statutory authority uh, 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 questions built in here. Uh, the most important recent case, which is a Supreme Court case, it's worth uh, flagging, even though it doesn't mention uh, uh, petroleum refiners, is uh, Iowa Utilities Board uh, v. FCC. This is a 1999 FCC case that deals with uh, FCC authority vis-a-vis -vis state regulators. Um, and one of the things that the Supreme Court holds in here is that the FCC's general grant of rulemaking authority in uh, uh, sections 201 and 202 to do common carrier related stuff, uh, give the FCC, the FCC, Communications Commission, general rulemaking authority to develop rules to implement the rest of the Communications Act generally viewed as a uh, outer limit sort of rulemaking case. It is a Supreme Court case, so it's important to have uh, on the table for, uh, uh, or in the background as we think about these issues. Okay, so the modern administrative law questions here. Uh, we, we have several. Um, just to queue up one that uh, Svelana uh, uh, started to uh, address, the procedure questions about MAGMOS. Uh, we have seen very little um, uh, MAGMOS rulemaking over the years, just solely on the UDAP side, um, and almost none uh, that has been litigated. There are uh, open questions as to the actual requirements of uh, uh, MAGMOS, both procedurally and substantively. Uh, uh, in particular, what needs to go into an advance notice of proposed rulemaking. Uh, many agencies issue advance notices of uh, proposed rulemaking as a matter of best practices, but none of those agencies are governed by the specific requirements of MAGMOS. So uh, other uh, uh, judicial discussions of ANPRs really are irrelevant to uh, the substantive requirements of a FTC ANPR. Um, and the uh, uh, commercial surveillance ANPR in particular doesn't do anything to suggest what specific rules the uh, agency might be considering uh, adopting. And if you read Section 18, uh, uh, if you read MAGMOS, it's, uh, the ANPR is supposed to give some indication of rules potentially under consideration in order to solicit input and feedback on them. So uh, there could be substantial uh, substantive uh, defa uh, deficits to the ANPR. How that will play out is just a fascinating administrative uh, question. Um, on the UMC side, we have a couple of things. Uh, I've written a couple of articles talking about what I call administrative antitrust. Um, one thing to add to the discussion is that antitrust law is one of the few areas of federal law that are generally considered to be federal common law where the courts have really retained uh, uh, authority to say what the law is. Um, in the early 2000s, there were a couple of Supreme Court cases, uh, Trinco and Credit Suisse in particular, where the court seemed to indicate two things. First, a preference to normalize this area of administrative law for uh, uh, regulatory agencies to 
uh, have control over the development of antitrust law instead of the courts, but also a strong preference for an understanding that antitrust requires some amount of uh, stability over time. In fact, that's one of the reasons that the courts, uh, the Supreme Court suggested a preference for regulatory approaches to antitrust um, so that there would be more frequent and gradual uh, uh, revisions and changes to antitrust law instead of punctuated Supreme Court cases every several years. So uh, this brings us to the other big picture uh, question with UMC rulemaking authority, which is the major questions doctrine. Um, so as many people, hopefully everyone uh, uh, has some awareness this past term, the Supreme Court in West Virginia v. EPA embraced the so-called a major questions doctrine, saying that questions of vast economic or political significance require clear authorization from uh, Congress if uh, an agency is to answer those. Um, uh, and together, the, UM, the uh, major questions doctrine question and the administrative antitrust question play important roles, or I think will play important roles in how the courts look at FTC UMC, so FTC antitrust rulemaking. This is very broad authority, unfair methods of competition. Um, it is a, I, I think, and many others uh, have argued as well, a very easy major questions style case. Uh, if the FTC makes dramatic changes to existing antitrust norms using this very ambiguous authority, uh, the courts seem likely to say, hey, wait a second, uh, that requires clear congressional authority. Congress didn't empower you, FTC, to completely rewrite the rules that govern the entire tech sector, a major portion of the economy. Um, similarly, if this is done uh, on an antitrust basis, that would be a uh, vast departure from existing antitrust law, suggesting uh, that the court under cases like Trinco and Credit Suisse might uh, uh, prefer to retain judicial control over this area. Um, the big question in my mind, I think so long as the FTC uses its uh, UMC authority in modest ways in line with uh, existing antitrust principles, the courts are likely to say, good job, this is fine subject possibly to national uh, national petroleum refiners uh, uh, questions. I honestly have no idea how the court, uh, if it were to address uh, petroleum refiners today, would come out given the legislative history. Um, I think that Iowa Utilities Board was a extreme outlier case. I think that the statutory interpretation that Skelly Wright, Judge Skelly Wright did in uh, 73 uh, would not be reused today. So I, I think it's unlikely that petroleum refiners would be upheld. Um, that said, I think at some level it's a, uh, from a, putting my antitrust hat on, uh, so long as the FTC is only making incremental changes or uh, is operating in line with extant antitrust policy. Uh, I, I don't think that there are substantial concerns with uh, its use of that authority, uh, modulo the broader administrative state questions. And with that, uh, I didn't even talk about Chevron. So Aaron, I'll let you bring that up in Q&A. Uh, uh, all right, so you've all heard each other um, reactions. Uh, if you wanna take a minute or so to respond, uh, Henry, thoughts? Yeah, I guess, you know, reflecting on the recent administrative case law coming out of the Supreme Court, like SELA and uh, EPA, 
you know, West Virginia versus EPA. It's, I, I, I mean, I do think that the FTC, you know, having been de described as a quasi-legislative, quasi-judicial, uh, you know, entity, I don't think suggests that it doesn't have rulemaking power. I mean, I think it can, it can do its job. It can carry out Congress's job, as Gus was saying, in modest ways by through rulemaking. You know, and so I don't, I don't guess I don't read, for instance, Sela and Humphreys as doing anything, doing any violence to that sort of perspective. As for the major questions doctrine under, you know, um, West Virginia versus EPA, I agree. I mean, I agree to the extent that if we're talking about really aggressive rulemaking aimed at broad swaths of the economy, you know, or at a particular sector that's you know that's very important to the economy. I think that would you know be be a question of major economic or political significance, and um, it could you know kind of, you know um, this, the commission could be seen as overstepping its bounds there. And, and so, like for instance, with respect to non-competes, I think a question is how broadly do you go? Do you just target a specific you know? Um, you know, industry, like, like the use of non-competes in, I don't know, in, you know, um, in shipping or something like, you know, warehousing or something, or do you, you know, do you go broader and target non-competes in, you know, fast food and, you know, hospitals and all that? I think, I think that that's, there's a question there about how, how broadly do you, you know, draw that circle? So that's one comment. Svetlana? What are you, oh, sorry, I didn't make a job. Svetlana? Uh, thanks. I mean, a few a few responses on kind of the UMC rulemaking point. You know, while the FTC Act did say that the FTC can promulgate rules uh, for the purpose of carrying out the statute, um, typically the FTC's authority to promulgate rules coincides with an ability to impose penalties. Um, there isn't such a penalty provision connected to 6G of the FTC Act. Um, and in addition, the 6G language is in the section of the FTC Act dealing with investigatory authorities. So some of these facts maybe um, suggest that the FTC may not have rulemaking authority on the UMC side. Um, also, you know, query whether a court would really buy the National Petroleum line of argument, you know, when, um, you know, Henry was describing it, he mentioned ambiguous, silence. Yeah, uh, so those are not the kind of key phrases the Supreme Court would uh, necessarily like in terms of having the FTC have these, these broad rules. Um, I mean, interesting, we mentioned some, some Supreme Court cases, but the other kind of interesting Supreme Court cases, National Federation of Independent Business versus OSHA, uh, where the Supreme Court held that the applicants are likely to succeed on the merits of their claim that the secretary lacked authority to impose the mandate. Um, and the Supreme Court said, we expect Congress to speak clearly when authorizing an agency to exercise powers of vast economic and political significance. Um, you know, so I think this is going to be a significant question presented as to the FTC's powers here. And, you know, to Gus's point on if the FTC were to promulgate a narrow rule, it could be online 
with FTC's mandate, if it's tied to the you know, Sherman Act and the antitrust laws, I think we're seeing here a real question as to whether FTC rulemaking would be tied to the antitrust laws. The FTC has long held that its UMC authority is actually broader than the antitrust laws. And further, the FTC did rescind its UMC policy statement, which um, at least cabin somewhat or set some parameters as to the FTC's UMC authority. Here, without any parameters at all, the question does remain how broad the FTC will go, and perhaps the FTC will try to seek a broad UMC rule um, as they're doing on the UDAP side with respect to commercial surveillance, for example. So all of these questions are, are ripe for discussion and um, will be closely watched. Thank you. Gus, you just spoke, but do you want to talk about Chevron? Uh, do I? No. Um, so we, we have, I'll just say really briefly, in the background uh, of all of the, uh, this, uh, UDAP and UMC are incredibly ambiguous statutes. Um, the FTC for many years thought or uh, believed that it would not benefit from Chevron deference in its interpretation of these statutes. I've argued that that's actually incorrect. And I think in recent years, the FTC has uh, started to recognize it probably would get Chevron deference. But frankly, at this point, uh, the FTC is uh, talking about doing things that are so broad and not just about uh, uh, getting the benefit of deference, but really pushing the scope, the outer limits of its authority that uh, uh, while there might be some interesting Chevron questions in the background, the, the core questions are really, does the FTC have the ability to make rules, period? And Svelana uh, raises a couple of the uh, traditional indicia of substantive rulemaking authority, especially the, uh, are there penalties for violating uh, uh, these um, uh, violations, um, uh, these rules, uh, and then the broader, 800 pound gorilla question of uh, major questions. Uh, really the major questions uh, doctrine issue uh, has I think trumped any of the Chevron style questions because the Chevron style questions will only be brought up in the context I expect of any major questions doctrine issues. Uh, the, the last uh, point that uh, I'll make following up on Svelana's points about the scope of section five uh, this is one of the uh, long-standing perplexing questions of antitrust law and uh, Section 5 Federal Trade Commission law. What is the scope of Section 5 authority? Uh, there's long-standing understanding uh, both amongst the Commission of uh, Republican and Democratic Commissioners and Supreme Court authority that says Section 5 is broader than the Sherman Act. But how so has never really been defined. Um, and uh, that will be uh, uh, one of the uh, important wedges uh, or margins along which these uh, fights are uh, argued. All right, audience, if you have questions, put them in the chat and we will ask our experts. While we're waiting for some questions, um, I'm gonna throw out some questions for the team. Uh, well, something that seems, I think, strange is why now? Um, we've had, you know, the FTC has been around more than 100 years. These are old statutes. Um, National Petroleum is almost 50 years old. Uh, why suddenly is this issue so hot when, you know, it could have happened any time before? So what, what's going on now? And I, I don't, whoever wants to go first can have it. But I think a lot of people are wondering, like, what has changed to make the issue now, like, at the forefront? 
So Maybe Henry, yeah, go ahead Henry first on this one. I'll start. I mean, I think, you know, one reason is that there's a frustration with, you know, the rule reason approach in antitrust, the fact that it takes so long to get to, you know, results, you know, under a case-by-case approach, under a common law approach, and that aren't there problems, you know, competition problems out there that can be more readily, more quickly addressed with a rule than with just going after companies, businesses, you know, one at a time. Uh, I think that's that seems to be, you know, something that that's coming out. So, Alana, does that does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think it's that question. I think it's also the frustration, or at least the belief, um, in the Biden administration that the past forty years of antitrust enforcement and the FTC have been failures, and I think they want to kind of renew enforcement and maybe look at areas that traditionally are more difficult to show antitrust violation in terms of like free services, for example. And then I think they're looking for more deterrence um, in light of the AMG decision and civil penalties, for example. Um, and you know, on the privacy side, I think there's just uh, a feeling that Congress is perhaps taking too long to craft national privacy legislation, and the FTC needs to uh, bridge the gap and and kind of uh, craft a UDAP rule to cover privacy and data security. And, and I'll uh, yeah, I'll add to that. Um, I, at some level, I think these issues have been percolating up for the last twenty years or so. If you look at uh, starting uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, the FTC's efforts on the privacy front, for instance, uh, where the the commission uh, uh, was starting to recognize some privacy issues, but it used its authority to try and shoehorn uh, 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 solutions and carve out solutions while constantly going back to Congress and asking for more authority that never uh, came. Um, then you could, uh, I, I won't do a full history here, but if you look at the Section 2 report, for instance, uh, 2007, uh, immediately uh, uh, rescinded 2009, you can see some issues uh, on the margins of the antitrust community that were starting to percolate up and gain traction amongst uh, a uh, more enforcement-focused portion of the academic antitrust community in particular. Uh, and then the rise of uh, concerns over, quote, big tech, uh, I think, has catalyzed in recent years uh, a lot more energy, especially among advocates uh, in the Biden administration. And it, it's all, uh, I think, really unfortunate because, as Svetlana notes, the uh, uh, 40 years of uh, antitrust consensus in the United States uh, has been great for uh, the country, for the economy, uh, the consumer welfare standard uh, is uh, the the diamond uh, in the crown of the American economy in many ways. Um, and uh, there are concerns around the margin, absolutely, but uh, those concerns have crescendoed in recent years into a, a real political force that with the Biden administration have been put into power uh, positions of power uh, with both agencies and in the White House. Uh, and uh, that that's what has uh, uh, really been holding the reins. And so we have a couple of questions from the audience. Uh, the first question is, um, and this could be to any of you, as a matter of litigation strategy, wouldn't it make sense to have first competition rule be something that, that bans price fixing or something 
Um, I, I take the question to be something that's broadly approved of and not especially aggressive, rather than a more esoteric rule, which I understand is what Chair Khan is considering. In other words, if you were uh, in the FTC, like what rule do you do first um, if you want to take, you know, see what your, your UMC authority is? Um, maybe Svetlana, do you want to jump in on that one? Um, well, I think the per se rule is easier or the per se rule in litigation is easier to show because you don't have to do kind of the, the cost benefit analysis and it's just easier to prove in court. So I don't think from an FTC standpoint, it would be worthwhile from an administrative um, burden and, and, and resources uh, point of view to craft a per se, uh, you know, a rule banning per se, because it's basically banned um, by the case law. Um, and FTC has an easier way um, to prove it in court. I think where the FTC is leaning now is kind of to figure out, you know, as Henry was saying, kind of the rule of reason cases and whether there are some parts of a rule of reason case that could be banned by a rule and make it easier for the court to, to show um, liability. But I, I, you know, defer to Henry on, on his views here as well. Henry? Yeah, I mean, what I would say, I agree that, you know, I think you know, with something like price fixing, which is subject to the per se rule, that it's not really difficult for the courts to, you know, um, to, you know, adjudicate that and hold it to be unlawful. So I don't think there's really a, a need for a rule for that. But one thing to think about here, and this goes to the, the, this issue about, you know, <clears throat> whether Section 5 UMC, you know, authority is broader than the antitrust laws, whether it's broader than the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act, it may it may actually make more sense for the FTC, if it's thinking about competition rulemaking, to look at an area where, you know, Section 5 touches, but the Sherman Act and the, and the Clayton Act don't touch because then it would, you know, avoid the conflicts that are going to come up with you know, the antitrust divisions, you know, antitrust policies, uh, you know, so for instance, invitations to collude, right? Where there's, a, there's actually a recent um, article, but actually in, it, coincidentally from a, from a um, Justice Department employee suggesting a, a rulemaking on no collusion, saying firms should not be allowed to, you know, change your prices solely in response to someone else's price announcement or something like that. So, you know, something simple like that, that maybe, you know, wouldn't be touched by, you know, Section uh, 1 of the Sherman Act, uh, you know, might might be something that is, you know, would be a, a good starting point. So, right, uh, next. oh, uh, sorry, guys. Yeah, a, a couple of quick thoughts on this. Uh, first, building on what uh, Henry just uh, said, uh, the FTC in 2015 had adopted a UMC policy statement, which interpreted uh, uh, UMC authority to go to things like issues to collude, uh, invitations to collude. Um, and uh, one of the first things that Chair Khan did when she uh, uh, joined the commission as chair was to rescind that rule. Um, so uh, uh, it seems anything that the current commission is thinking about would have to be at least beyond the scope of the 2015 uh, UMC statement. Otherwise, why would they have uh, rescinded it? I, I actually took the uh, question uh, to be a little different. Uh, and uh, I just want to respond uh, to uh, uh, a, slightly, a slight variation. I, I took it to mean, um, as a matter of litigation strategy, wouldn't it be better to have 
adopted a rule and then you're litigating the rule that you've adopted instead of proceeding just through adjudication without uh, a rule. And uh, at some level, sure, absolutely. If that rule is going to be upheld by the courts, if uh, the courts are going to look at that rule and say, you don't have authority to do this, then you just lost the case. So uh, if, as a matter of litigation uh, strategy, adopting a rule that uh, you don't have authority to adopt might be a great way to lose the case before you even bring it. All right, we have another question and that is, and this one, I'll go to Henry first. Wasn't the whole point of the broadly worded section five to allow the FTC to address the entire economy? Like the language of section five is broad. It's always been broad. This is me paraphrasing the question. Mm -hmm. Congress knew they were enacting broad language. Shouldn't we take that seriously? Yeah, no, I, absolutely. So, in terms of the FTC's jurisdiction, you know, you know, via you know interstate commerce, right? It's pretty much anything and everything except for the specific carve outs in Section Five. So, for instance, banks are carved out, common carriers are carved out, you know, entities under the Packards and Stockyards Act are carved out. Otherwise, the FTC has broad jurisdiction, but I don't want, I think you should not confuse jurisdiction, you know, enforcement jurisdiction with rulemaking that attempts to address kind of just a sweep under a single rule entire swaths of the economy, right? So even, even though the FTC has broad enforcement jurisdiction, it was still contemplated that the FTC would use that jurisdiction on a case-by-case -case basis to target, for instance, you know, I know an anti-competitive hospital merger in, you know, um, Texas or, you know, a, um, you know, a, some, you know, a, a, you know, a, a problematic um, joint venture in Pennsylvania. I mean, it's still on a case-by-case -case basis. It's, you know, so that, I think that's the issue, I think, for, for me anyway, is, you know, a rule that tries to capture too much, tries to do too much, would implicate the major questions doctrine. When the uh, FTC was created, there was a substantial debate about whether to give the agency any authority at all, or whether to merely have them be a research agency that would report back to Congress to support uh, congressional uh, development of statutes. Now, the agency was given authority. That uh, uh, research approach uh, was uh, ultimately rejected. Um, but uh, the I think Henry's answer is uh, really uh, uh, insightful and critical to understanding the ability to act broadly doesn't necessarily mean the ability to uh, impose uh, rules broadly. And beyond that, uh, even if Congress enacted a statute in 1914, that doesn't mean that it is necessarily constitutional. If the Supreme Court after 1914 said this type of statute is not constitutional. Svetlana, do you want the final word? Uh, and I agree with everything that's been said. Um, so not, nothing to add on that question. All right, well, we're coming to the hour. I would like to thank my panelists. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, this is an issue that's gonna come up some more. So you know, stay tuned for, for more, um, more from us and more from others. And everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. <laughs>